0: Joshua chapter 9 is an interesting story. Uh, It's a strange passage about a deceptive uh, agreement. You see, the Gibeonites, they deceive the people of Israel into making a covenant with them that they should not have done. And furthermore, what's even in some ways stranger is the fact that God requires them to keep this covenant after they entered into it. See, the reason is because in God's paradigm, keeping covenants or binding commitments is critically important. You see, it would be almost like this is almost an example of like, before I married Matheson, my wife, uh, before I proposed to her, if I had said, you know what, Matheson, I'm going to be a really rich banker. This is my goal in life, to become a rich banker. Will you marry me? And she says, yes, that would be great. And then on her honeymoon, a couple days later, saying, you know what, actually I'm going to be a pastor. That would be a deceptive form of, an, of, a, of a covenant. Now obviously she would be mad at me at such a, such a situation. And in this denomination, they would never have ordained me as a pastor, if that was the case. Um, but the fact is, we would still be married because we take oaths, vows of a covenant commitment. And God takes these oaths, He takes covenants very seriously. And this is some of the part of this passage, is the seriousness of covenants and of oaths. But in some ways, the real punch in this passage, the punch to the gut of us, comes in verse 14, which is the summary of this whole passage, which says, And so the men of Israel... "...took some of the provisions of the people of the Gibeonites, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord." See, this is how they entered into a binding covenant that was to their own hurt. See, the whole point of Joshua chapter 9 is basically saying that we need to consult with God before we enter into binding commitments. We always consult with God before we enter these binding commitments. And so, I, I think we know that pretty pretty well as Christians, that we should pray to God, consult God, before we make any kind of big decisions. This is kind of an obvious thing for Christians. And yet, for oftentimes oftentimes we don't do it and we struggle. And so, what we're going to look at and focus on here is two reasons... Two reasons that we need to consult God before we enter into binding commitments and covenants. And then a theological reason behind the reason. Okay, so let us pray. Lord, we come to your word because from it we find life. In your word we find guidance. In your word, Lord, by your Holy Spirit we see Jesus you who keep your covenant with your people. And so, illuminate our hearts and our minds this morning so that we may put into action your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the first reasons that we see in this passage that we should uh, consult with God before we make binding commitments is simply the fact that looks can oftentimes be very deceiving. And put it another way, just because something looks right or feels right or makes sense doesn't mean that it automatically is right. This is something that the the Israelites learned right away. see, when the Gibeonites had heard that uh, what Joshua did to Jericho and to Ai, they feared. And it says in the scripture that they acted with cunning, whereas the Israelites actually acted not so smart, you see they, what the Ig- Gibeonites did is they were resorted to deception in order to protect themselves, and what they did was smart. they understood that the Israelites were told that they could not enter a covenant with local people, the local Canaanites. For those who did not repent, that they were to be destroyed. And so the Gibeonites, they said, you know what? We're going to pretend that we're a people from a far away country, from a far away land. And so what do they do? They bring torn clothes. They wear worn out clothes, old baggage. Their shoes, their flip-flops are falling apart. They bring even old bread. It's crummy. It's moldy. And so by all appearances, all appearances, they are from a far away country. And so it would be okay in that sense for the Israelites to enter a covenant with them. You see, the Gibeonites say to in verse 6, they say, See, we have come from a distant country, so, now make a covenant with us. And the Israelites are obviously, understandably, they're skeptical. They know that they're not supposed to enter covenants with local, the local people. And they respond, Well, in verse 7, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? And Joshua himself even questions them in verse 8. And he says, Who are you? Where do you come from? And in some ways, the Gibeonites kind of resort to flattery. They say, oh, we are your servants. We have heard about how great your God is. Now, what they say is true. And they would become their servants if they entered into a covenant with them. And they did know the power of Yahweh. But one commentator put it on this. He said that such a confession of the Gibeonites, where they say, we are your servants and we know the great power of your God. This would be tempting the Israelites in this situation to flatter themselves as invincible and thereby set aside caution in the negotiations that follow. You know what it's like if you're a kid when you want something from your parents. You come to them and they say, Oh, most wonderful father, I am your little child. Mom and dad, I love you so much. You're the greatest parents in the world. Could I please go have a sleepover at my friend's house? And your parents say, first off, well, what do you want? And what are you, what are you thinking? And then if you're my dad, he would have said, okay, well, I am a pretty awesome dad. So sure, you can go. In some ways, this is kind of what they're doing. They're, they're, they're bringing up these great things and resorting to flattery, which in some ways makes the people of Israel set aside caution. Flattery, they, they set their guard down in making these decisions and then they really get to the point and they really use their cunning and deception here when it says in verse 12 you know they're they're still not quite sure if they should make a covenant with them and the gibeonites in verse 12 and 13 they basically say look look here is our bread touch it taste it feel it they say behold look Look, our wineskins are old and bursting. They were new when we got it. See how our sandals are worn out. It makes sense that we are from a far and distant country. Look, feel. It makes complete, reasonable sense. And then verse 14, which is the critical uh, jab that the author of Joshua says. And so the men of Israel, they took their provisions, they looked at it, they felt it, they saw it, but they did not seek counsel from the Lord. And so Joshua made peace with them, and he made a covenant with them. And three days later, they found out that they were local, just their neighbors. And so I think, in a really clear way, we see here that just because something looks right, these things looked right, they felt right, it seemed to make sense, didn't mean that in God's world it is right. See, sometimes when we have to come and make important decisions on commitments, we we come from two different perspectives in this world that we we're with. One is the materialist view, and there's also what is a mystical view, and these are kind of the ways that we tend to come about making decisions. And the materialist view is basically what the what Joshua and the Israelites do. Say so we touch it, we see it, we look at it; it makes sense. This is how we oftentimes come to decisions the materialist or oftentimes secular view. We make decisions based off of the data that we can see with our eyes, the facts that we can gather. You see, and so the results, they all add up based on the material evidences of things and what makes logical sense, and therefore then we make our decisions. Because this is from a view that says, all there is is the physical, material world, and this is what we consult to make decisions. Sometimes if we're prone the materialist way of thinking that all we will do is we'll make cost benefit analyses to determine if something is right or good and these is good and, and right and these are good things to do but the problem is basically this is all that the people of Joshua, the Joshua and the people of Israelite do they just look at what's in front of them and they decide it seemed to make a lot of sense Lacked critical information because we believe that God is the creator of the universe, that He is a spiritual being above and outside of it. And so there are spiritual realities that must be considered in making in critically important decisions. See, we can't just gather information about important decisions and just from there decide. We walk by faith and not by sight. And we fight against the principalities and powers. And so the material is not all there is. And so we cannot just say, do cost benefit analysis and see what looks right. But oftentimes we're also, uh, we come to make decisions by a mystical view, or what is a kind of a spiritualistic view on making decisions. And this is kind of popularized in the West and in our world today by Star Wars. You know, when when George Lucas came up with Star Wars, part of the reason he came up with the idea of the Force was to inculcate spirituality in people. And if you remember in Star Wars, the beginning when Luke Skywalker is learning to use the Force... He says, what does Obi-Wan Kenobi say to Luke? He says, let go of your conscience, self, and act upon instinct. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. Stretch out with your feelings. And this is in some ways the mystical view, and sometimes, oftentimes, the the scene as the spiritual view, which is to feel decisions. There's energy, and you make decisions based off of the energy that feels right. And you see, this way of thinking doesn't get so wrapped up in analysis. It's this idea that there's this deeper energy and feelings that get to the source of what is the right commitment to make. And if, the, if, if Joshua and the elders had done this, it would have made sense as well. I mean, what feels righter, more right? than saying, well, yeah, these people are nice, they're good. You know, it just makes sense. It feels like the, the right kind of spiritual thing to do to enter into a covenant with these people. But we know that feelings are fickle and energies change. My feelings on a decision can change based on how much coffee I have in my system. We know feelings change so easily. But Christianity says that we, it's not just about what we see logically and determine, nor is it what we feel inside. But it is rather what we hear from God in His Word. This is how we come to make serious, important commitments. This is what Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says at the very point of consulting God. How do we do it? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not, depend not on your own understanding, in your own abilities of analysis, on your own internal feelings, but in all of your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. You see, the opposite of trusting God and consulting with God is just to depend on our own analysis, our own understanding, our own feelings on something. But to trust God is to acknowledge Him, to consider Him in everything, to know who He is, His will, His heart, His character from the Scriptures. And this is the basis of our decision making. And it says, and He will make your path straight. So we trust in the Lord with all our heart and we consult Him, especially when things don't seem to to make sense to us. Because we know that, that looks can be deceiving and our feelings can be deceiving as well. So then the second reason that I think we we see here why we consult God before we make binding commitments is also because He takes our commitments very seriously and He will hold us to our word once we have made a commitment. You see in verse 15, it says, Joshua made peace with them and he made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. See, there are two things that the Israelites do here that God takes very seriously. It says, one, they made a covenant with the Gibeonites. And two, therefore, they swear to the Gibeonites that they will keep their covenant. You see, when it says that they make a covenant, this is talking about a serious binding commitment with obligations. It says they make a covenant to let them live. You see, the, the word make a covenant to let them live, there's three interesting Hebrew words, which I'm just going to say to them because they sound cool. There's this word make is karat. Karat. And a covenant is Barith and live is Hayah. Sounds kind of like a karate move. Karat Barith Hayah! <laughs> but the word make a covenant, it's Karat, which means to cut a covenant. It is a cutting action. It is a, this image there of being cut off if you do not keep your end of the covenant. It is this idea of these animal sacrifices where you are being cut off. For breaking the covenant if that's what happens to you. If you break it. See the idea and the image of being cut off. For not keeping your part of the covenant. Is always in the background of this idea of making covenants. It's there in the covenant of circumcision. This idea of being cut off. And so the point is that we see when they make a covenant that there's this importance, that it is a really serious thing with consequences. You know, sometimes um, when we drive down the road, my wife and I and will see some roadkill, and she points at it and says, that's you if you break our covenant. <laughs> because binding commitments are serious. And we enter into them understanding that there are consequences for breaking them. This is part of the very image of making a covenant. And then it says that they swore to them that they would let them live. See, after the people found out that the Gibeonites were their neighbors and that they had the elders had made a covenant with them. See, the people wanted them to say, No, okay, let's, let's forget that. Forget what we said to them. Let's, we need to destroy them. But what do the Israelite the elders say? And they don't make a mistake again. They say, No. We swore to them. We swore an oath that we would let them live, and so we will. In verse 19 it says, We swore to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. You see, when they swore, the elders of Israel are making an oath to the Gibeonites, by the Lord God. It is, in a way, it is calling God to be present with them, requiring them to keep it. The Westminster Confession, which we uh, believe is a summary of the theological teachings of Scripture, in some ways says there's a, makes it a little bit of a difference between oaths and vows. And way up, uh, one commentator put it that oaths are promises that we make to other people in God's presence, whereas vows are promises that we just make to God. Now that may be a hard or fast line too, too, too strong, but if that's the case, then technically speaking, when we enter into a marriage covenant and we make vows, which is what we often do when we call the marriage vows, they're, they're actually like oaths. They are oaths, you say, to your spouse, calling upon God to be present. Another way of putting an oath... Is that it's calling God to hold you accountable to your promise to another person? You see, they said, "We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, so we will keep our oath." See, it's swearing to another person by God, holding you accountable to keep your promise. The under, the elders understand the seriousness of their oath. And so they say in verse 20, this is what we will do. We will let them live. That is, keep our promise to them. Lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. This is the nature of oaths. It is calling on God to be present and hold you accountable to your promise to a person. It is calling God to witness what He asserts or promises and to judge us according to the truth or falsehood of what we swear. And so what oaths do, what the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel are doing in their oaths, they're clarifying, they're adding credibility and trust to saying we will keep this covenant. If not, God will judge us. This is what oaths do. They demonstrate your earnestness and your seriousness about whatever commitment that you make. And so take, for example, uh, weddings. When you make your wedding vows. Imagine what what a wedding would be like without wedding vows or oaths. You come up to the altar and the pastor says to you, would you like to maybe spend some time with this person for a while maybe? And you say, sure, that'd be fun. <laughs> That's kind of what it would be like without these oaths. Now, how, how, how secure, how clarifying is it demonstrating your commitment by just saying that? Sure, sounds good. But this is what where oaths in a wedding covenant ceremony they come in and they say, I am swearing to you before God and these witnesses to hold me accountable, to hold me accountable that I will not leave you or forsake you as long as we both live. You say, it is calling God and these witnesses to hold you accountable to the performance of your promises. You see, oaths clarify and they make the seriousness of our commitment because they bring God to be a witness. And this is what the Israelite leaders understood the gravity of their commitment and it is because oaths and are so and covenants are so serious in scripture that they that that the wisdom of the scriptures that Jesus even says look in your life you should not just go about making oaths let your yes be yes and your no be no this is what Jesus and James says you know James 5 he says but above all my brothers do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. The reason we don't just go around saying I swear it by the hair of my chinny chin chin I will do what I say. The reason we don't take oaths in life because do you want to come under condemnation for something small? Let's say you forget something. Let's so say you're a forgetful person and you forget oftentimes to close the doors to the house at night to lock up before you go to bed. This is not a real-life situation in my life at all. But let's say that is the case where you you have this problem and you constantly forget to lock and you say, I promise, dear wife, that I will lock the doors in the future. I swear to it. Do you really want to be held to held accountable before God for something like that? And to make an oath for things like that and to swear upon those things is also just to cheapen your words. To say that you cannot be trusted for your yes or for your no. But here's the point that I want us to see. Since God takes our commitments so seriously and holds us to our word and to our oaths, it would be a good idea for us to talk to Him and consider what He has to say before we enter into them. Because once we enter into them, He is going to hold us to our word. See, God takes it seriously and He holds us to our words. In fact, the Israelites learned this very lesson. You you see, hundreds of years later, King Saul, he tried to kill the Gibeonites. And uh, what it says in 2 Samuel 21 is that after King Saul tried to kill the Gibeonites, that... Uh, there was a famine in the days of David, and for 3 years year after year and David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he was put because he put the Gibeonites to death. You see, Saul tried to break the covenant with the Gibeonites. He tried to put them to death, and the wrath of God broke out against the people of Israel for it. God takes it seriously and He holds us to our word. And so, we really ought to consider before we enter into commitments because God holds us to our word. (coughs) But why? Why does it matter so much to Him that the Israelites would keep Their covenant with the Gibeonites. You know, why do you think, why do we get so angry at Christians when they hypocritically break covenants, when they break commitments with each other? Why do we become so angry about those things? Why does God care so much that we keep our covenants and our binding commitments? And this is the reason behind the reason, which is that God Himself. Is a covenant keeping God. He is true to his promises, as he says. You see, this way he is in this way, he is so different from us. You know, oftentimes we are bound to something or to someone. And when it becomes inconvenient for us, we want to try to get out of it. Whether it's a work obligation, a lease, anything. When it becomes hard and when it it becomes inconvenient for us, we want to get out. But God is completely different from this. When I was in third grade, we were doing a, a, a group project and the teacher picked who were our partners. And I was paired up with a girl, one girl who was known as the Booger Girl. Because she picked her boogers all the time and she admired them, these little gems that she would have and then she would put them on her desk and save them for later to eat them at another time and nobody wanted to be stuck with the booger girl but I was stuck with her for this project and I tried and I pleaded with the teacher please let me out of this I do not want to be with the booger girl because I do not want people to think of me as that way, as a booger boy see when we find that we are stuck with someone that it is a drag when we find that they are a liability we want to get out of being committed but God is so utterly different he is not so he says I will keep my covenant with you you booger people you people who bring me down he says I will be with you I swear upon it and here we have to understand some biblical theology about how God keeps His covenant promises to us even when we are worse than the Gibeonites, worse than booger people. See, Genesis seventeen three. God 13, God says to Abraham and to his children, He says, My covenant shall be with you and your flesh as an everlasting covenant. See God's covenant with with Abraham and with His children is everlasting; it's never ending, which is meaning to say that He is the one who is going to keep it because it does not end. And so, then in Psalm eleven, verse one hundred eleven nine, He says that He sent His redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. That is, He has authoritatively declared that it will be forever. Great and awesome is His name. You see, God, the Redeemer, our Creator, He declares that He will keep His covenant. And He swears on it, on His own holy name. And His name is tied to it. And this is where Hebrews then picks it up in chapter 6 of this thing where he calls on his own name. He says in Hebrews 6, that when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore it by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently awaited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. You see, when God wanted to promise Abraham and his children, when He wanted to make sure that His promise was absolutely certain, that He would keep His word, He promised by an oath upon His own name, This is a self-maledictory oath. That is, God is calling down curses upon Himself if He does not keep His promise to bless His people. But the children of Abraham walked far away. They broke the commands of God. They turned from His covenant as we do. And they all deserved only to be cut off and cursed. And yet how can God still promise to bless those people who only deserve to be cursed? What does He do? God kept His oath. He kept His oath. And Colossians 2 says that at the cross, God in the flesh was cut off. He was cast aside as a covenant breaker. Galatians 3, that Jesus, God in the flesh, was cursed on the cross as a lawbreaker for us. God kept His oaths. And the cross is where God keeps His covenant oaths. It is where Jesus, who is God, bears God's own self-cursing oaths see the cross is for us where God proves that he keeps his covenant and his word even when keeping it meant harm to himself even when it's inconvenient do you ever feel like God wants to be rid of you that he wishes to have nothing to do with you or to go back on his commitment God, by His oath, by the cross, says and shows that He does not loathe us. He does not desire to be rid of us. He is committed to us. He is not like some child trying to get away from another child that is inconvenient for Him. He is not weary of His commitment to us. He has said so. Because the cross is the sign of God's oath, keeping it, even though it was costly to Him. See, when we sin, sometimes we wonder, God, how could you ever want to keep your promises to me? God, why are you still keeping with me? Why haven't you left me? And the answer is that at the cross, God kept. And keeps His promises. Because our sin has been dealt with. That He will not leave us. And He delights to be with us. And even the Gibeonites. In verse 27. They remained as servants of the Lord. And they served at the altar. In the temple of where God's presence was. You see God. Is a God. Who keeps His promises. And so this should motivate us to keep ours as well. And this is why He takes covenants so seriously. And so we ought to consult Him Why even in our unwise commitments are still unbinding, are still binding. And we ought to consult Him because He is the God who keeps His covenants. So let us pray. Lord, by all accounts, it was be utterly unwise of you to enter into a relationship with us. But you did. Through your Son Jesus, you are able to keep your promises to us and delight being with us because you have kept your promises. You keep Your covenants. And so for that, Lord, we praise You and we glorify You. In Jesus' name, Amen.